Unitarian Universalists have in common, religious freedom. Some people mean, think, take that to mean that you are free to believe whatever you want. And in fact, it is not that. We have the capacity to believe what integrity and passion call us to believe. If we're lucky, we can be true to ourselves and come to do about what we have the most passion and find that work meaningful. It's called finding our calling. We have a gang of clergy here, and they know what their calling is, and they're in it, maybe. (laughs) We have a whole lot of us here who say, calling, but if you have done what conscience and integrity has called you to do, what passion and your sense of necessity, the necessity of your being has invited you to do, then you know your calling, and you too have been called. Joseph Campbell calls this following your bliss, having the gift of knowing what the necessity of life has invited us to make real in the world. And for some of us, it means being a religious professional. For others, it simply means being called to a higher purpose that leads us to become the people we most know we are in our hearts. We've heard a lot about calling, and you'll hear a little bit more about it. I once asked a friend, have you ever heard a voice calling you from on high? He thought about it for a while, and he said, well, actually, it happens fairly often. I think of the other day I was walking through the aisles and Kmart shoppers. (laughs) (laughs) There are special deals in Notions and electronics, come on down. I'm sure some of you probably respond to that sense of calling more than the other. But I want to turn as we talk about calling to three mythic or scriptural pieces of vision around calling. I think first of Moses. Moses went up on the mountain and God spoke to Moses. And Moses says, no, not me. No, no. I'm not worthy of it. I'm not capable of bringing your word to the people and offering them your wisdom. I'm not worthy of it. You've got the wrong guy. And God said, no, you're the right one. I'll be with you. And he went down the mountain with what Unitarian Versalists have come to call the Ten Suggestions. But I mention Moses because many of us, when we are confronted with necessity in large measure, ask ourselves whether we really are worthy to try to solve the problem before us. It must be somebody else who's asked to face the problems of my community, my family, my profession, or of the world. I'm not worthy of that. It must be someone else. And necessity and capacity sometimes says to us, no, it is you. Come forward. And when you do, you are answering your calling. And God said to Moses, I will be with you. And God was with Moses 
and it was good. Jonah is in some ways the polar opposite. Most of us know the story of Jonah and the whale, or as scripture says, the very large fish. (laughs) It's the story and part of God's insistence kept after him with the call. Yes, you. (laughs) No, no, I'm not going to Nineveh. Yes, you. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) Well, let me show you. (laughs) And sometimes we get to surrender whether we intended to or not. That's the part of the story that most of us know, but the scripture really is about Jonah's belief that the people were not capable of changing. And that if he went to them and asked for a change, they would take it out on him that he was trying to make them do things that they didn't want to do and calling them to task for betraying God and betraying themselves. He didn't believe in them. But lo and behold, he's in Nineveh. And then he winds up, despite what he wants to do, telling them what they ought to do, which is, you have been betraying yourself and betraying God. Come on up. And to his dismay, they do. (laughs) They start changing. Well, think of the problems of the world. Do you think we can solve debt crisis? Climate change? No, no, the people aren't capable of changing. And God says, yes, they are. The surprise to me in the scripture is then once the people change, Jonah is disappointed. God! (laughs) But I tell you the Jonah part of the story because he doubted the people's ability to change. And yes, we can. Now we get to Samuel the third of my scriptural pieces, he's pretty much clueless. He hears this voice. (laughs) It's you. Oh, no, no, I'm just dreaming. It couldn't be me. It's you. It couldn't be me. Who's calling? Who's calling? Even his friend and ally, his mentor, Eli, says, "Ah, go to sleep. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. But eventually he finally gets it. And he comes back and he says, I am here, Lord I'm ready to serve. What I take of the Samuel story is that when we hear our calling, we don't always hear it the first, second, or even the third time. But it takes someone in community who says to us, out of our loving and caring network of family, mentors, faith community, the world itself, who says, we hear it, don't you? And in that reflection, sometimes we hear our calling. What I say to you, community of hope and friends, you have been Eli. Don't you know it? There has been the call of necessity and capacity. And you have said, Lord, you have got capacity, girl. (laughs) We're with you. That's called confirmation. We are here to confirm that calling. We are here to affirm and confirm your capacity to be that reflective community that says, yes, we see the best in you, and we are there with you for it. Thank you. What a gift you have been. You are her first love. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
this is something you guys are going to have to work out. <laughs> I was speaking, of course, metaphorically in Unitarians. <laughs> so quick to be literal. <laughs> I remember my own calling. I had suspected since I was in junior high school that I was called to be a Unitarian Universalist minister. And one time, coming back through Tulsa during my college years, I stopped by to visit my childhood church and my childhood minister, the Reverend Dr. John B. Wolfe. And I said to John Wolfe, I think I'm called to the UU ministry. Lord. If there's anything else you can do, do that. (laughs) There are a number of ways to have taken that. (laughs) But I took it as a challenge to test my call against all of the things that lured me towards them and to see if they were enough. I tried being a radio and television producer, and public relations officer. And it was not enough. Too much time talking to machines and no heart or soul. I decided, well, where I would go was counseling and direct relationship. And it wasn't enough. It was only about craziness. And then I tried being a YMCA program director, and it was not enough. And then I was asked to be the youth minister of one of the larger Methodist churches in Northern California, and it felt like I had come home. And when I decided to go to seminary and answer the call, having had my Eli moment, I said, I'm going to become a Unitarian Universalist minister and go to seminary, and they said, we will pay for your first year. And I said, well, why would you do that? I'm going to be a Unitarian Universalist, and they said, because we are Christians, and you can tell by our love. And so I am a Unitarian Universalist, married to a Methodist, and you can tell by our love. (laughs) (laughs) I offered three scriptural references, and I offer my own story, but then I want to turn to cultural references that may be helpful to us as well as we think about calling to our true self and what it means to call and to respond to that call. Theologian Howard Thurman wrote that our calling is where our own passion meets the world's hunger and the world's need, where our capacity meets necessity in the world. These are ways in which we are called And some of us are called to lead, and our very public presence says leadership. And some people are called to be lovers, and their compassion leads them into the healing ministries or healing arts. And some of us feel compelled to do justice work, and some of us want it all, and we go into ministry. (laughs) The next source I turn to is Parker Palmer, who has a story in his book, The Hidden Wholeness, about doing a workshop in Washington, D.C. for politicians to help them come in touch, to reconnect with their integrity and their passion and their true self. 
People who are asked over and over and over to compromise their dignity in order to get what's possible, right? Politicians. During the workshop, one of the participants said he had been dealing with a particularly painful experience where he was feeling conflict between his values and the power politics of Washington, D.C. He had been 25 years in the U.S. Department of Agriculture and had grown up on an Iowa farm, a farm family. He said, I have on my desk in the U.S. Department of Agriculture a proposal related to the preservation of Midwest topsoil, which is being depleted at a rate so rapid that agribusiness practices are destroying the very source of agriculture in the Midwest, and we need to save it for the welfare of our food source and the welfare of the earth. My farmer's heart, he said, knows what the answer is. My political antenna says if I go down that path, that I'll probably lose my job. Or there will be other forms of reprisal that will be harmful to me and to those around me. And probably first among them is my boss. He went home that night and began to think about what he should do. He came back the last day of the retreat and said to Parker Palmer, my farmer's heart has answered the question. Am I answerable to my boss? My farmer's heart says, no, you're answerable to the land. And it's the land of which I'm bound and the truth I'm called to tell. Whatever the consequences, he chose to tell the truth. Every time we touch the truth within us into that which, to which we are bound, there is moral gain for all concerned, all concerned. And when we fail to answer that call, <laughs> like Jonah, like Samuel, The world has a way of nudging us. (laughs) You didn't get that one. Try this one. (laughs) Maybe it's just me. (laughs) When I refuse to hear integrity and necessity call my name, then I feel out of sorts and lose my grounding. How about you? I'm talking about not just Elizabeth's call, but every one of our calls as people dedicated to integrity to listen to it and answer. answering the call. Now at this point I want to say that there's a cascade of great Unitarian Universalists, so great a cloud of witness, and I could pick any one of the tens of thousands of great Unitarian Universalists and share with you people who've heard that call and answered in ways that might inspire us. I think of Theodore Parker, who preached transcendentalism even when his colleagues said he was so heretical, they voted him out of the ministry of the Boston Association of Unitarian Ministers. One of the greats. Or Dorothea Dix, or Sophia Foz, or Frederick May Elliott, or A. Pal Davies. But I want to tell you about Reverend Nick Cardell who was, as I came into ministry, the chair of the fellowship committee, who came before the General Assembly as a part of our service of the living tradition and told stories. I knew that he had been involved in trying to stop 
the School of Americas that taught assassination and terrorism and destabilization of other governments. I was inspired by that. I knew, but what inspired me about Nick was his first story about going into ministry, doing his very first memorial service, and partway through the service, fainting out. Fainting right out of the pulpit. The congregation ran over and said, are you all right? And propped him back up. And he said, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And he began to talk about the deceased. And, and then the next thing you know, he fainted away. <laughs> they finally took his manuscript and read it in order to finish the service. <laughs> and I felt so good. <laughs> it's like, here was Nick Cardell, one of our fine, one at the chair of the fellowship committee, standing up there at the service of the living tradition. And if he could faint twice and still do ministry, heck, I won't even do that and I may be okay after all. <laughs> Feeling a little like Moses. Am I worthy of the call? But the story I want to tell you about Nick was the story about the 11-year-old boy who had watched his dad mow lawns for years and longed for the day when he would be like big enough to pull the cord and run the power lawnmower. At 11, his dad said, that summer, you've arrived. Gave him lessons in pulling the power mower. Boy, he was up and down the yard. He was having such a good time. He was mowing like twice a week whether it needed it or not. And the neighbor sees the boy just having fun mowing. And he, he says to him, come on over. Would you like to mow my lawn? <laughs> the boy says, yeah. Well, yeah, but, but, but how much? And the guy says, well, uh, $5. And the boy goes, but, but I've only got three. <laughs> my, my allowance will come next week. Can you wait for the other two? <laughs> Nick says, there are times that we are called and we can't believe when we finally get to do it, that anyone would ever pay us to do it. But never underestimate the value of your gift just because you love it. Your gift has value to the world. Insist on its value as well as your love and passion for it. So I want to summarize. Believe in yourself. Believe in the people. Value community and listen to it with your heart. And never undervalue the gifts that you have to give. The world needs it and so do you. I say these are simply other names for the holy, and the holy resides here with us.